Peace be with you, church. If you can open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Today we are in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, Lord, to worship you, to honor you, to exalt the name of Jesus, Lord, as we open up your word, we just pray that you would be amongst us, that your spirit would teach us. God, let my words be honoring to you, Lord. Let the meditations of our hearts as your church be pleasing to you. Guide us, direct us, teach us, challenge and encourage us today. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, aloha to all of you. Um, to those who are joining us online, uh, their temptation to switch between church and Super Bowl is real. <laughs> um, the benefits of having church in the middle of the Super Bowl is I think we get to see who the real Christians are, huh? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, some of you are like, what is Super Bowl? Did I miss something? Um, well, I'm sure we'll be far more blessed today to hear from the Word of God. Um, and so as we've been going through this epistle, uh, what we see Paul does is he ascends to these peaks, to these high peaks of amazing revelation about God. He lets us in on God's plans from eternity past into eternity future. He shows us God's heart for us. God's rich grace and his love towards us undeserving people. We see how God takes the broken and the worthless and he lifts us up and he seats us with him in the heavenly places. And it's all unmerited. It's all undeserved grace. And so as we think about what God has done for us, as we are maybe even overwhelmed with awe, we may think, all right, if God saved me, if God called me, if God empowered me, this is no small thing. The result, the implication maybe should be that we need to go do something amazing, something good for God. We need to go out there and we need to change the world. If God has done something so amazing, what are we doing sitting here? Shouldn't we be out saving the world? Missions, campaigns for the gospel, maybe go out and feed all the hungry in the world, maybe find a home for every orphan. Wouldn't that be the more proper and logical response 
to the amazing salvation that we as God's people experienced. And all of these things are very important, and God does raise people, and he calls them to do all of these great things. But here's what's happening in our text. As Paul turns his attention from doctrine, amazing doctrine, to application, as he shows us how these amazing truths are to be played out practically in our own lives, the grandiosity of these great works as we can do as Christians, they're nowhere to be found here. They're not here. As Paul descends from the high peaks of theology, and as he turns our attention to practical application, he calls our attention to the ordinary, to the mundane, to something that we might even call boring. This is where we can, this is where Paul expects us to see and to experience God's power at work in us. Not somewhere out there doing great, amazing things. But in the everyday, mundane, and ordinary. And when we look at the rest of Ephesians, and the context of Paul's exhortation and instruction, we quickly see that it's very relational. Um, He deals with our relationships with our spouses, our children, our parents, co-workers, friends, neighbors, our church family. That is the context. That is where the work happens. Practical application of God's amazing truth is accomplished in ordinary, everyday relationships. But why? Why would God put such a huge emphasis on our relationships, on the mundane life with one another? And we might think, really God? Don't you have something greater for me to do? Shouldn't I be transforming the world out there? Instead, I'm stuck here dealing with these ridiculous people. I'll talk with you later, Eddie. (laughs) And here's the deal. The truth is, it is much harder to live in close relationship with one another. It's much harder to live with other imperfect people than it is to go and do great things, to dream up of the great things. In our everyday relationships, stuff gets revealed. Stuff that is really hidden within us. As we do life with one another day in and day out, all sorts of buttons are pushed by our children, by our spouses, our parents, our friends, our coworkers. 
Daily relationships, they challenge us. That is where anger, frustration, bitterness, that's where it all comes out. When we do life with people who are closest to us. That is where the real power is needed. Power to continue in our patience. Power to forgive. Power to be kind. Through these relationships, we can see how much more we still have to put off the old self and put on the new self. In the day-to-day, in the mundane, that is where we need God's power. That is when God does the soul work within us. That is where God reveals the dark crevices of our heart that we maybe thought already don't exist. And so for the next few weeks, as Paul gets really practical, we're going to really slow down. I wasn't planning for this, uh, but we're really going to slow down. We're going to take one to two verses per Sunday, um, and we're going to look at what the Holy Spirit through Paul brings to our attention as we look at what does it mean to live like the people of God. So it's going to be really practical. And so if we go back to the context of our verses, and if we remember uh, the the main theme that Paul is trying to get across here in chapter 4, we see that Paul is fighting for our unity. Paul is fighting for our maturity as a church, as a people of God. He's fighting for our unity and maturity with God and with one another. He wants us to grow up. Why? Why is this so important to God? Why does Paul, why why is this such a predominant theme in Ephesians? And as we take the words of Paul, we, we can see that unity and maturity is so important for the church. Because God is glorified Christ is exalted in the church when the diverse body of Christ lives in unity. If you remember, God has destroyed walls of hostility. God has created a new people who come from different nations, different languages, different cultures. And he made us into one people. He united us and he made us his church. And so when we, different people, live in unity, we proclaim that yes, what God has done through Jesus is in fact true. When we live in unity, we proclaim that yes, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, We have been reconciled to God, and we have been reconciled to one another. If you remember in Ephesians 3.10, Paul says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities 
in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is God's purpose, it is God's plan, it is God's design for the church to display God's manifold wisdom to proclaim Christ to the entire cosmos, to the entire world as we live together in unity. That's how important unity is. And so, if unity is such a powerful testament to God's power and to God's wisdom, if it's so important to God, then what that means is that the day-to-day relationships with one another, the mundane, the boring, these relationships become a great arena for God's power to be on display to the world and to the cosmos. That's how important they are. And so, in chapter 4, Paul is showing us what unity looks like and how we can fight for unity. And so if you remember two weeks ago, he introduced us to this imagery, this concept of old self and new self. Paul told us that the old self is corrupt. The understanding of the old self is darkened. It's ignorant to God. Its heart is hardened. The new self, which the people of God are defined by, given to us when we are born again, the new self is created after the likeness of God in true love in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4.24. That's the new self. And so the new self hates the old corrupt way of life and loves the things of God, loves what is true and righteous and holy. And so Paul calls us to put away the old self. He calls us to put on the new self given to us in Christ. And here's what we need to realize. As Paul is calling us to put off the old and put on the new, he is still fighting for our unity together. Listen, the enemy of unity among the people of God, what gets in between our unity is the old self. It's the old Gentile way of life. We destroy unity in our relationships, unity in our families, in our, in our marriages, in our churches. We destroy it when we walk in the ways that Gentiles walk. And that is why Paul gets to the nitty-gritty 
Looking at verse 25, we might think, really, Paul? Lying is the first thing that you address here? Like, you really think that we're struggling with lying? Look at verse 25. He says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. As Paul is fighting for our holiness, he's also fighting for something else. Our unity. Our oneness. We don't lie to each other because we are members. And so if we don't understand this, if we don't understand what's going on here, what Paul is trying to get across, then the rest of this letter, as Paul calls us to stop lying, stop stealing, the rest of this letter will sound like moralism. It will sound like legalism. It will sound like a bunch of rules. But we got to realize, as God, as Paul calls us to these things, he shows us that God cares about our holiness, our purity, but it's not just for our own personal sake. There's much more at stake here. The unity of the church is at stake. The manifold wisdom of God that we are to display through our unity is at stake. And these things that Paul's going to talk about, they get in the way of that. And so, if we proclaim Christ, if we say that we love Christ with our mouth only, and we live like the Gentiles. And if we continue to live according to our old self, we're a fraud. We are actively destroying the work of God. That's what's on the line. As Paul is fighting for our holiness, he's fighting for our unity. This is why this is so important. This is why Paul gets to the nitty gritty. And so from verse 25 and on, Paul will show us what it means to put off the old self. For the sake of our purity and also our unity, he's fighting for our holiness but also our oneness. And so with every exhortation, Paul gives us a negative command and a positive command. Verse 25 he says, put away falsehood, that's negative, but he also calls us to speak truth, it's positive. He tells us, don't steal later on, instead work to bless others. Instead of corrupting, up, cor- corrupting talk, build up, speak grace to one another, and so on. He makes it clear that falsehood, stealing, corrupt talk, all of these things are the old self. These things destroy unity. But truth, grace, hard work, kindness, that's what defines the new self. And they build up the body 
of Christ. And so the first thing that Paul addresses, brings to our attention, is falsehood. And so the, and the Greek word here that Paul uses is pseudos. It literally means to tell a lie. Some translations will say put away lying. Um, thinking about lying, I think one of the hardest things for me as a parent to deal with um, is the stage maybe all kids go through. Most of my kids went through that stage is when they learn how to lie. I just, I can't stand it. It drives me nuts. Um, when they discover this tool of lying, it helps them get away maybe one out of ten times, as far as I know. Maybe I've been deceived more. Maybe it's like 50-50. <laughs> and the reason why it's so hard for me to deal with lying is because sometimes there's so much evidence that they're lying, but I can't know 100%. And so I can't punish them because if they're not lying, it makes me a liar. It's incredibly hard to let go in those moments, to remind them that lying is wrong. I'm not saying that you're lying, but lying is wrong. But then we look forward to, not we don't look forward to, but we look for those moments when they lie again, we know 100%, and then we could discipline them properly. But if we look at the world around us, lying, deceit, falsehood, is on full display. It's a tool that the world uses constantly. The kingdom of our world is built on deceit. Lying has become incredibly specialized and sophisticated. And I don't, we don't have to go far to, to look at it. Just look at politics. <laughs> look at the media. Relationships between nations. So much is built on falsehood. So much is built on the ability to outwit one another. That's just the way our world operates. This deception, it runs very deep. Worldviews, religions are established on these lies. Just look at the moral revolution happening around us. We thought that biology is pretty clear, that it's fact. And yet, our world today even perverts that. We are told a man can be called a woman, and a woman can be, be called a man. And everybody pretends as though that's true, that that's normal. And we can go on and on. Even Jesus, talking to the religious leaders of his time, Jesus calls out the Pharisees for their deception and for their lying. This is what he tells them in John 8. John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth 
because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so Jesus makes it clear. The devil is the father of all lies. The world, as we know, is under the influence and control of their father, the devil. Lying and falsehood can all be traced back to him. So it only makes sense that our economies, our, the worldviews of this world, are built on falsehood and deception. And that is the way of the Gentiles. That is the way of the old self. That is how we all operated. And when we think of lying, we may define it in very primitive ways, like calling black white and white black. That's lying, and all of us will agree on that. But if we look deeper, falsehood often comes out of us in very justified ways. We never just lie. If we speak falsehood, we often clothe it in righteousness. We justify it. When we lie, we have good reasons to do it. Some of us are liars without even realizing it. It's just the way we live. And if we think about, about it, lying is always motivated by something else. Some of those underlining motivations may be fear. Fear of being found out. Fear of rejection. If I tell the truth, if they really know who I am, and so we preserve ourselves, our image, our reputation, maybe even our righteousness, our good standing. Jesus calls out the religious leaders of his time because their righteousness, the image that they presented was a lie. They were not who they were portraying themselves to be. Maybe there's sin in your life that you love. You don't want to give it up. So you lie to hide it from people in your life. Another motivation to lie can be greed. We want to achieve something. We want to get somewhere. We want something from another person. And we use all means available to us to get there. Even if it takes deception, manipulation, falsehood. For many, the end justifies the means. 
And lying can take so many forms, so many forms. We are sophisticated liars. Just go on Instagram. So much people, by just posting truth about themselves, are lying about what their life really is. Maybe you're flattering people to get your way. Maybe lying in your life is expressed cheating on wages, on taxes, breaking a promise that you have made, making up excuses that are false to get out of commitments. Maybe you're just a nice person. You have to lie, you have to lie a lot to be nice. Again, most of the time when we do this, when we lie, it's very justified. We have very good reasons to do it. We can convince others that, yeah, this is justified. But it doesn't make it right. And as we look, as we really think about what falsehood is, at its core, it's self-preservation. It's self-promotion. It's always at the expense of others. And we can't get into all of the examples, but I pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal to all of us areas where falsehood needs to be purged of. Falsehood destroys unity. Falsehood works against God's design for us to be his people. Falsehood destroys relationships and marriages. It has no room. There's no place for falsehood in God's kingdom. Small or large, there is no place. It is the way of the old self. It is the way of the world. That is how our world operates. But God has made us a new people. He gave us a new self. And this new self does not play the games of the world. And so as Paul calls us to put away falsehood, to stop lying is not enough. He doesn't just tell us, hey, stop lying and moves off. He says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Speak truth with your neighbor. In God's kingdom, Falsehood is replaced with truth. And so what does it mean to speak truth? If we live a life of self-preservation, self-promotion, preserving an image, preserving a reputation, achieving, and we do that with falsehood, how do we 
take the first step? How do we go from self-preservation, self-promotion to speaking truth to one another? How do we do that? It's scary. And I think the answer is pretty simple. And yet, I think it's incredibly profound. As we desire, as we look to step out of falsehood into truth, we find that power when we look at the cross, when we look at Jesus. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. Jesus knows us completely. Nothing is hidden from him. All of our hurts, all of our failures, all of our shame, all of our fear, everything we are trying to hide from everybody else, Jesus knows the entire truth about who we are. And how does he treat us? He doesn't reject us. He accepted us. Paul says in Romans 5, while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. With God, there is no such thing of Oh, he loves me right now. He accepts me right now. But wait until he finds out the whole truth about me. There is no such thing with God. He accepts and he loves you with all of your brokenness, with all of your fears, with all of your shame. Here's the deal. Our sin, it wasn't just against someone else. Our sin was was against God. First and foremost, we've offended God. And he forgave us. He loved us. And the cross is the proof of that. Our acceptance cost God a great price. Just realize that. Just Think about God's love for you despite who you were. And so the gospel gives us the power to be honest. The gospel frees us to be vulnerable. The gospel frees us to live in freedom. The gospel gives us power to speak the truth. We are accepted. That's our starting point. We are loved. When other people will know the truth, and if they reject us, we are accepted by God. And so as a family of God, as God's people, we are to be honest We are to be truthful about who we are. And we are to know that we will be accepted and loved just like Jesus has accepted and loved us.
Imagine what it would be like to experience the love of God from one another even when we are honest about who we are with one another. Imagine experiencing the love that we have received from God, receiving it from one another when we speak the truth, when we are vulnerable about who we really are. James says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. When the gospel takes root in the hearts of God's people, when we realize that we are forgiven and accepted by God, we then have the freedom to confess our vulnerabilities, to be honest about ourselves. We are free to extend forgiveness, extend acceptance. James says when we confess our sins to one another, we will receive healing not condemnation, not rejection, not judgment. When we confess our sins to one another, we will receive healing. What a beautiful vision God gives for us as a church. Imagine this freedom. Imagine when the gospel takes such root in us that we are able to accept honest and vulnerable people and we are able to be honest and vulnerable. I pray that this would be a reality for us in our families, in our relationships, that we would experience this as a church in our community groups, where honesty and truth is valued higher than false impression, self-promotion, self-seeking. And this doesn't mean that we go and find a random person and spill our guts to them. This doesn't mean that everybody needs to know everything that is going on within us. Falsehood can also be clothed in vulnerability. There are many people who are good at strategic vulnerability. What Paul is calling us to is to live not according to the standards of this world, but that as people of God, we value truth even when it's painful, even when it's hard. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. I also wanted to, just because of the times that we live in, um, especially what happened over... um, in, uh, two weeks ago, kind of underlines this. Uh, we had the police show up, show up, a neighbor called the cops, um, and they graciously didn't come in. Um, they just told us, announced that for people to wear masks and they'll go. But this does underscore the times that we are living in. 
so much things that we love about our country, they just seem to be unraveling. They just seem to be crumbling right now. One of them is religious freedoms. And so as people of God, how do we respond? Many today on social media, blogs, forum, on stage, in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their, to their neighbors, their response is anger and fear. Everyone is trying to scream over one another and tell each other the truth. If you knew the truth, then you would change your opinion. That's what we have. A bunch of people trying to shove the truth into each other. Pointing fingers. And so is this what Paul means when he calls us to tell the truth to your neighbor? Does this mean that we should send, send our neighbor the new YouTube video that we saw? The real story behind what's happening. I don't think so. Earlier in this chapter, he was clear. When we speak the truth, we do it in love. Is that what we're doing as a church? And I just want to, in conclusion, as we finish up, and as we think about speaking truth, not just within ourselves as as, as, the, as the people of God, but even to our neighbors, the communities that we live in, online. And as we face opposition, as we feel a lot of things are being taken from us, how do we respond? What's the proper, what's the truthful way to respond? And surprise, the Bible has an answer for that. Who would have thought Two passages, Romans 12 and Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 43, this is Jesus' words. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collector do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In Romans 12, verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's pretty clear. God has given us clear instructions on what a proper response to opposition looks like. And so as we think about how do we speak truth, how do we use truth, think of it in these parameters that God has set for us. Think how we are displaying the gospel to those around us right now. I think we all have a lot to think about. There's a lot of work the Spirit of God needs to do in my heart, in all of our hearts. And so let's give this thought. Let's invite God to do this work in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Truth that even though it was given, written 2,000 years ago or more, is still, still so applicable today. Still so real today. And Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would do a great and powerful work in us. Help us, Lord, as hard as it is to put away all falsehood. Help us as a church to be rooted and grounded in Jesus. Help us grasp the love and the acceptance we have received from you and help us extend that to one another. Lord, I pray that we would not have fear to be honest, to be truthful. And I pray that we would be willing and able to accept each other, Lord. As we confess our sins to one another, as we are truthful about who we really are, the state of our soul, the help that we need. Father, use your church to heal the wounds of one another. Use the relationships, God. Let us not, Lord, be busy trying to impress one another, trying to show our greatness and achievements. Help us be lowly. Help us be rich in grace and mercy. Lord, do this work in us. We need it, God. We need to experience this freedom of speaking truth. And God, as we, uh, we don't know, we don't know what's ahead of us. Father, we pray that you would prepare us to not be quick to avenge ourselves, prove ourselves, but be quick to bless our enemies, to love our enemies, 
to pray for them. And Lord, as we hear your word, we see how short we fall. How often our first response is not that. So God, mature us, grow us, unite us. In Jesus' name we pray for the glory of your name, God. Amen.